I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. Welcome back to World Weekly with me, Gideon Rachman. This week, we'll be looking at the many controversies courted by France's President Sarkozy. At the Pope's visit to Britain, at the survival of a Japanese prime minister, and at the fortunes of the Japanese currency. First, France. Earlier this week, Europe witnessed the extraordinary spectacle of Vivian Redding, a European commissioner, roundly condemning France for its treatment of Roma, otherwise known as gypsies, and saying that France's deportations of the Roma were reminiscent of some of the excesses of the Second World War. Meanwhile, President Nicolas Sarkozy is facing scandals involving party funding and clashes with the press. So I asked the FT's Ben Hall in Paris if we're witnessing a French president under siege. Yes, I think he is, although he seems to be relishing it by by all accounts. He had a pretty lousy summer where he couldn't shake off serious allegations of uh, illegal party financing involving France's richest woman, Lillian Betancourt, and uh, which engulfed his government earlier in the summer, and he wasn't able to shake that off. And at the same time, he has launched a very controversial reform of the pension system. In the meantime, there are all sorts of separate controversies that he has provoked, um, perhaps the most recent being an allegation that he got France's domestic intelligence agency to spy on a Le Monde reporter who was reporting about the so-called Betancourt scandal, and that this was taken as another sign that Sarkozy was trying to tighten his grip on the press to try and control the way that the press were reporting the story. I have to say it hasn't stopped the press from becoming increasingly hostile against Sarkozy, with some pretty virulent coverage in recent weeks with uh, titles on the, on the weekly magazines such as um, Sarkozy, the, the thug of the republic, or Sarkozy, is he dangerous? So he is getting a, a pretty rough ride from the French media at the moment. Now, of course, he has run into trouble on the international stage with his call for the closure of camps occupied by Roma migrants and the expulsion of Roma back to Bulgaria and Romania, potentially in breach of EU law. Let's take that issue first. I was very struck by the ferocity of the language with which the European Commission condemned President Sarkozy's policy on the Roma. It's not usual for the Commission to take on a major power within the EU like France in that way. But I wondered, how will it play in France? I mean, do you think potentially Sarkozy could turn this to his his advantage? Well, I think he has done already because Vivian Redding's comments were over the top. And that, of course, gave Mr. Sarkozy and the government plenty of room to counterattack. And I think they're feeling quite happy with themselves this morning because they claim that Ms. Redding has been forced to apologise and that her behaviour was outrageous. And I think Ms. Redding's words probably were badly chosen, but she has expressed legitimate concern and it, she's fully in her role as European Commissioner for Justice to be calling France to account on this. I think the problem for Mr. Sarkozy is that he has por- portrayed himself as a sort of leading voice in Europe, somebody who wants to 
set new moral standards for the way Europe, for example, regulates its economy and the way it behaves in the world. And yet here he is being condemned by U the UN Commissioner for Human Rights, the European Commission, US politicians for the way that they are treating the Roma community here. And I think that is potentially quite damaging. It's certainly damaging to his pretensions to sort of European leadership. How do you think it'll play out in the end? Do you think he'll back down or do you think he'll push ahead with these deportations? Because it, it is a, it's a very tricky issue internationally, but it's also a domestic issue, isn't it? I think he will press ahead with it because it's quite popular at home. He's clearly set himself on this course where he is trying to piece back together his right-wing coalition that stretches from the centre all the way to the far right, and he needs to fend off the National Front ahead of the 2012 elections. And this is clearly and very blatantly one way of trying to recoup far-right votes. I think what will probably happen is that the French will try their very, very hardest to persuade the European Commission that actually they haven't acted illegally. And despite this uh, now notorious memo, which suggested that the authorities were targeting the Roma community, which would be not only illegal under EU law, but actually illegal under the French constitution, I think they will try and show the, the, the authorities in Brussels that Actually, despite what it said in that memo, the way they have actually car they carried out these camp closures and uh, the expulsions themselves is legal, and they are giving every, every person expelled or, or encouraged to leave individual treatment, individual consideration, and that they are not tarring a whole community and expelling them en masse. How about this clash with Le Monde? I mean, France's most famous newspaper denounces the president on its front page for alleged illegal actions for persecuting its reporters. That also sounds pretty damaging. On the other hand, Le Monde is a, an elite paper. W will President Sarkozy be able to shrug it off? He probably will be able to shrug it off, unless, of course, there is a investigation by um, investigating magistrate. It's essentially a story about uh, media freedoms and the abuse of uh, executive power by a, 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 you know, incredibly powerful president. I don't think it's of enormous importance to French voters. It's a Parisian metropolitan story. And in itself, the Le Monde allegations, while uh, uh, astonishing, is perhaps not as serious as we might think. What the, the, the intelligence agency are accused of doing is actually spying on, the, on, on a government official uh, who was leaking stories to Le Monde, not actually on Le Monde itself. Nevertheless, the newspaper says it's a gross breach of uh, sources of confidentiality, etc., etc. So it's going to fight its corner quite hard. I don't think that in itself will play out hugely with the public. But the Le Monde story is the latest in quite a long list of examples of Mr. Sarkozy tightening his grip on the media. He's installed a new head of France Television, having changed the law so that he could nominate him himself. He's changed the, 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 the head of news at France Television, has been replaced. Earlier in the summer, Mr. Sarkozy tried to block the sale of Le Monde to three independent-minded and perhaps left-leaning businessmen. And lastly, Le Parisien, which is a quite influential mid-market tabloid in France, is up for sale. And I think all eyes will be on who actually buys it. And one of those who... Is, uh, is interested in buying it is Vincent Bolloré, billionaire industrialist who is friends of Mr Sarkozy. So that will be seen as another, if it were to be sold to Mr Bolloré, that would be seen as another example of the media falling into the hands of uh, Mr Sarkozy's friends. It all sounds oddly reminiscent of what's going on in uh, France's southern neighbour with Silvia Berlusconi. The same allegations of attempts to control the media the same colourful private life which occasionally invites ridicule. And also, uh, Mr Berlusconi has clashed with Europe over treatment of the Roma.
French bloggers and satirists have long made this parallel between uh, Sarkozy and Berlusconi. Often I think it's overdone. Mr. Sarkozy didn't come into politics to protect his own business interests or his own uh, immunity. But I think more and more, and certainly over the last few months, we've seen some stronger parallels between the two. And uh, now the whole, obviously the most blatant uh, example of similarity between the two, the the clampdown on the Roma. And it's ironic that in in, um, Le Figaro newspaper today, there is an interview with Silvio Berlusconi uh, talking about how this new alliance between France and Italy should help to shake up Europe, you know, with, with Friends like that, who needs enemies, I think, is how many people in France would see it. Just a last question, though. I mean, on this this parallel, I mean, I suppose one big difference is that French civil society seems to be in better shape to push back at any over-centralising tendencies on the part of the president, whereas in Italy the judiciary, the press are in rather worse shape. I think that is true. I think there's perhaps a, a bigger issue here, which is that in as Mr Sarkozy becomes more like his Italian counterpart... He risks further alienating the um, the French voters who have deserted him because they deeply dislike the way he carries out his public functions, that he is not worthy of the role of head of state, that he is too divisive, that he doesn't stand above the political fray, that he is interested only in partisan and advantage, that he is excessively deferential to, to the rich and doesn't do enough to help the poor. Um, Berlusconi has, has carved out a political identity by taking issue with the Italian state. And actually, the Italians quite like that because they don't particularly identify with the, uh, the sort of state apparatus, if you like. Um, whereas in France, I think they do. I think there is still a very strong public identity with the idea of a kind of republic which unifies the nation. And Mr. Sarkozy is betraying that kind of Republican heritage in the eyes of very many people. And that's at the root of his unpopularity. Ben, thank you very much indeed. To Tokyo now, where the Prime Minister Naoto Kan has survived an internal party challenge to his leadership from the controversial figure of Ichiro Ozawa. Mio Diki, our Tokyo bureau chief, explains how Mr. Kan prevailed. Well, I think the key factor in the survival by Naoto Kan, Japan's Prime Minister, was public opinion. The voting public strongly backed Can. Mr. Ozawa is extremely unpopular. And it, it quickly became apparent that that general feeling was reflected also among the rank and file of the ruling Democratic Party. Now, I think many analysts and, and political observers here think that Mr. Ozawa has actually started off with stronger support among the DPJ's um, Diet members. But in the end, I think even many of Mr. Ozawa's supporters felt they couldn't go so much against the, the popular will. The, the, the challenge by Mr. Ozawa to a prime minister that, after all, only been in office for, what, three months, really raised a lot of worries about the potential for a party split. However, Mr. Ozawa himself has been very vocal in promising that he wants to continue to work with the DPJ. I think the fact that he's still got such strong support among Diet members, he will expect to continue to be a player. So the big question now is to what degree the Prime Minister gives positions in Cabinet and the party to supporters of Mr Ozawa. That was Miodiki. Now, one of Mr Khan's first acts after securing his leadership was to authorise a devaluation of the yen that's shaken world currency markets with me to discuss that is John Authors, who's editor of the FT's Lex column. John, what did the Japanese do and why have they done it? They intervened to push the yen down. I, they started uh, 
selling off their reserves of, of yen. And the reason they did it, as far as I can tell at an economic level, is that exporters were getting very alarmed by the sheer strength of the yen, that we had many years leading up to the financial crisis when the yen was artificially weak, thanks to what's known as the carry trade, the widespread practice by hedge funds of borrowing in, in yen because the interest rates are so low. Uh, and it's been a big shock to, to discover that they suddenly have an overvalued currency. The problem with this is whether it truly has credibility in the markets. There's been intervention in the yen before, and it generally doesn't work for a very long period. And I would say that we still have a lot of cynicism out there as to whether the Japanese will be able to keep the, the yen down the way they, they would like to. We're at an interesting moment where these issues have become highly political, these questions of currency. It's not just now something that people in banks and economic ministries are following. Do you think that the politics of, of currency are going to hoss up over the next year? Very much so. And basically what everybody would like to do is devalue. But the, the whole nature of foreign exchange, it's a zero-sum game. Not everybody can devalue at once. One of the points that is perhaps underappreciated here in the UK where we're recording this is that, that the UK managed to get its devaluation in first. Somebody somewhere will have to put up without uh, a cheap currency. At the moment... Very surprisingly, it's Japan. Given that their intervention is unilateral, without uh, the help from various other countries who perhaps would be quite happy to keep uh, the yen relatively strong, it's difficult to see how that will last. But this won't be the last time we see some country attempt to avoid being the loser in this game, being the one who's stuck with a with a with an expensive currency. Last question. I mean, in the past, we've actually seen international agreements, perhaps most famously the Plaza Accord mm. in the 1980s, where all the countries managed to get around the table and prevent this kind of beggar thy neighbour mm. uh, policies on, on currencies. Any prospect of that happening now? Not imminently, no. It, plainly, if things get uglier, if there's that much more stress on the foreign exchange market, then it becomes more plausible. I, I don't see any imminent chance of that at the moment. John Authors, thank you very much indeed. Finally, to the Pope's visit to Britain. The first papal visit in many years, and one that's excited a considerable amount of controversy. James Blitz, the FT's diplomatic correspondent, is with me in the studio. James, for the six million Catholics in, in, in Britain, the Pope's visit is a moment of uh, enormous importance, but it also seems to have excited controversy in, in wider society. Why is that? It's immensely controversial, as you say. I think the main reason, to be honest, is the timing isn't very good. Uh, the Pope is coming here on the back of the huge scandal that's happened over paedophile priests, which hasn't been a problem so much in England and Scotland. It's been a huge issue, of course, in the United States and Ireland. But it's created a great deal of uncertainty about the way in which the Catholic Church is handling this. In fact, it's been criticised quite heavily by the Catholic Church in England for the way it's handled it. The Vatican has been criticised. So that's one problem. I think, secondly, there is the issue of homosexuality and contraception, which, of course, is being very very heavily pushed by certain groups inside uh, the UK who are basically saying that the Vatican hasn't shifted. But I think one really important issue, not so much to do with timing, is that this Pope at the end of the day is not somebody who can really appeal outside the very core Catholic community. Uh, the contrast will be made and is going to be made with the last visit, which was by Pope John Paul II in 1982, who was a figure who really reached out beyond the Catholic world. And this Pope hasn't really managed to do that. Why has he chosen to come to Britain at all? 
I think it's not so much that he's chosen to come. I think one of the most interesting things is it's the British establishment that actually pressed for him to come quite heavily in recent years. The two people who really are significant in this trip and actually are not playing much of a part of it are Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. They have both pressed uh, Pope Benedict XVI to come here on several occasions in recent years. Mr Blair, of course, is a Catholic convert with a very strong interest in faith issues. Gordon Brown, the son of a priest himself, but more importantly, perhaps, somebody who had a very strong debate and discussion with the Vatican about issues like alleviating third world debt, poverty in the third world, and so it established very strong links, went over several times to the Vatican and made quite big speeches there. And they've been the big drivers. I think one of the reasons this trip has some problems is that there isn't anybody now in the new government that succeeded them who's really championing the trip at all. And it's obviously, therefore, slightly uncomfortable for the Vatican. I I get the sense that they have perhaps mishandled their public diplomacy there. There have been quite a number of problems. There's, of course, been the comments that were made by one cardinal this week who was saying that Britain was a largely atheistic society. In the end, I think it's wrong to assume that the Pope is going to come here and make some kind of gesture involving Anglicanism or the core issues of faith. Where I think the Vatican has made a big mistake, and it is felt, is in the whole way it's handled the paedophile priests issue. Over the last few months, it's never really stood up and said, this is a really big problem and we have to have deeper ways of dealing with it. That isn't so much tied to the British visit, but I think the way in which they fail to deal with that is making itself felt in the atmosphere of controversy that there is over the visit. James, thank you very much indeed for that. That's it for this week. I'd like to thank James and John Authors here in London and Ben Hall in Paris and Mio Dickey in Tokyo. World Weekly was produced by LJ Filatrani. Till next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.